Hello everyone, it's Dominic Cranis here, aka Revo, um, uh, for another sort of solo podcast thing. Um, so yeah, just as same as the last two, I'll just be talking about all sorts of all sorts of things, um, and hopefully, hopefully it's enjoyable and informative. Um, the first thing I want to discuss, which I think will be the title of this podcast, um, is yesterday. I thought it was a very beautifully grey day yesterday, I felt. Um, what I mean by that, I was taking the dog for a walk, and you know you have those days when, you know, it's quite cloudy, and it's not just cloudy, cloudy though, everything kind of looks desaturated. It's, it was always, everything kind of looks beautifully sort of desaturated and grey. Um, it's a very sort of surreal. It's a, it's a very sort of surreal appearance. Do you ever have days like that? Do you notice that sort of thing? I noticed in Scotland they seem to have these kind of days, quite a lot. Uh, when I first went to Scotland, I was amazed by how desaturated everything looks. I think it's quite. A, I, I I always like it when, when when we have days like that. It's not. I'm not just talking about cloudiness. I'm talking about a particular type of desaturation. I don't know. Maybe maybe my eyes. I've got green eyes. I've got very good eyes. Maybe my uh, maybe my eyes are just capable of picking picking this sort of thing up. Maybe other people don't notice it, or maybe they just don't pay enough attention. But I always find it quite beautiful when you have grey days, grey days like this that are all sort of desaturated and surreal and sort of melancholy. Um, and so when I was taking the dog for a walk, it was one of these days, um, and I was just imagining my mind wandered and I had all these sort of fantasies. I sort of fantasized that I had that I had gone to Yugoth which is in in the Cthulhu mythos of H.P. Lovecraft that's Lovecraft's uh, name for uh, for the planet Pluto um I I sort of fantasized that I that I'd gone to Yugoth and I was in this beautiful gray environment very desaturated environment surrounded by giant fungi and sort of weird strange plants and lots of purple colors and uh you know purple hues um very gray and desaturated and misty all these giant fungi everywhere and weird plants and animals and things very misty and sort of damp and dank um so that, that was sort of my my fantasy of 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 Yugoth. it was a very beautiful fantasy i thought a very beautiful daydream um i sort of i sort of dreamt the I saw it, there's there are fairy circles on on my village green, and I sort of imagined fairy circles on Yugoth, you know. Um, I sort of imagined old, old you know, stumbling across old ancient, ain't you know, ancient stone, ancient stone monoliths and things, you know, the ancient stone relics of old civilizations that have long since long since been forgotten. I think I'll begin this podcast. I wanted to begin this podcast with this with this strange little fantasy. Um and I'll I'll, I'll recite uh fungi some poems from Fungi from Yugoth, which is H.B. Lovecraft's uh, sonnet cycle. I appreciate H.B. Lovecraft Lovecraft's poetry. People criticize him because he's Generally, they, the people don't think he's that good a poet, but he's he's okay. Um, I appreciate his poems because it's it's rare to get horror poetry. It's not really a genre people think of when when people read poetry. They usually read romance poems, 
or nature poems or whatever. They don't think about a horror poem, you know? So I appreciate writers like H.P. Lovecraft or Clark Ashton Smith, the sort of writing poetry in that genre. Um, so I'll recite some poems from Fungi from Yogoth, which is Lovecraft's sonnet cycle uh, about, you know, the planet Yogoth. So you get more of an idea of what I was sort of imagining. The day had come again when, as a child, I saw just once that hollow of old oaks, grey with the ground mist that enfolds and chokes, the slinking shapes which madness has defiled. It was the same, and herbage rank and wild, clings round an altar whose carved sign invokes, that nameless one to whom a thousand smokes, rose eons ago from unclean towers up-piled. I saw the body spread on that dank stone, I knew those things which feasted were not men. I knew this strange grey world was not my own, but Yugoth, past the starry voids, and then. The body shrieked at me with a dead cry, and all too late I knew that it was I. It is a certain hour of twilight glooms, mostly in autumn, when the star wind pours, down hilltop streets, deserted out of doors, but showing early lamplight from snug rooms. The dead leaves rush in strange fantastic twists, and chimney smoke whirls round with alien grace, heeding geometries of outer space, while Fumalhalt peers in through southward mists. This is the hour when moonstruck poets know what fungi sprout in Yugoth and what scents, and tints of flowers fill Nithon's continents, such as in no poor earthly garden grip blow. Yet for each dream these winds to us convey, a dozen more of ours they sweep away. Very beautiful. So you get more of an idea of the sort of environment I was imagining. I might write some stories set in a kind of Yugoth environment. Maybe less horrific, because the vision I was having was more more beautiful. It was a beautiful environment. It was sort of, it was Yugoth without the monsters and aliens. It was just a beautiful sort of melancholy place of this... This, this desaturated grey hue. Um, so yeah, so let's... Last podcast I did, I was... Uh, I talked about the fact that I was reading... I was reading the Old Testament. Um, and I was reading First Samuel. Samuel. So I've, I've been reading more of First Samuel and I've started Second uh, Samuel. Um... So yeah, it's it's so, so the the books of Samuel, sort of the story of King Saul and King David, um, and basically, the, so Saul and David have a very interesting relationship because you know they are they are firm friends and they they love each other really like, um, but God has set up David to be Saul's successor, and this naturally. Well, it's it's strange. It's almost it's almost a self fulfilling prophecy, I think, because it's 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 Saul's jealousy of jealousy of David, which almost turns it, which which turns him into his enemy, basically. I think it's 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 his jealousy, which sort of alienates David and you know banishes him, and you know then David goes off and becomes this hero. He liberates you know cities like Keilah. He takes sort of indebted men into his army and it, he's, he becomes this hero if if Saul had never been jealous of David um, and had kept him in his court then maybe none of this would have happened so I thought this was a very very clever 
you know, that's a very clever uh, part of the story. Um, what I also like about the story, um, it gets to a point where, uh, so Saul's pursuing David, um, uh, and he, 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 he he's trying to look for him, he's trying to hunt him down. Um, so there's a lot of, like, comical sort of, it's, it's, it gets a bit comical and repetitive, like Saul chases David round a mountain, things like that. He chases him to the wilderness of Ziph. Um, but what I like about David, as I said, David loves Saul, you know. Um, he's, Saul's son, Jonathan, is like is like a brother to David, you know. So what I, what I really like about David's behaviour at this point in the story is that he's given plenty of opportunities to kill Saul. Um, but he doesn't. He really does not want to hurt Saul, despite the fact that Saul is always coming after him out of, you know, jealousy and paranoia. Um, and he's being stirred up by, you know, the people of Ziph to hunt down David. But David just really does not want to hurt Saul, even though he's given plenty of opportunity to. And I think it's a great example of sort of Christian, uh, the Christian doctrine of, of loving thy enemy. I think it's a great practical example of that, because... You know, David. David has. It, it's 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 not. People interpreting "love thy enemies" sort of or pray for those who persecute you as a very naive doctrine. I think it can be if you, if you if you you know, interpret it that way and sort of misuse it. But I think the example David gives is of a strong man who you know he could kill Saul if he wanted to, but he doesn't. You know, he loves Saul um, and he wants the best for both of them ultimately. And he does everything in his power to try and bring that about and avoid sort of conflict between them. Um, but he's he's not naive, you know. He's not naive. He's just, he, he's in a position of strength and superiority, and he demonstrates this, I think, by I think Saul's asleep in his camp, and David sends one of his minions to I think steal Saul's. It's either Saul's axe or his spear, uh, one or the other, and bring it back to David. Um, and so then David says to Saul. Uh, like up 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 on a up on a hill, he calls down to Saul and he says, "Look, I've got your your axe. I could have killed you if I'd wanted to, but you know I'm being merciful." So I think that's an excellent example of sort of pr bringing the sort of Christian teaching of loving thy enemy uh, in you know per performing it sort of practically. I guess um, you know it's it's not naive. You know, David is by doing this. David is sort of, he's establishing that he's in a position of strength and superiority to Saul. And it's only because he's in such a position, you know, that he's not going to kill Saul. You know, it's it's a, it's, it's a good practical demonstration of this Christian duty, you know, in the real world, you know, in, the, in a realistic situation, you know. Um, it's, yeah, it's, uh, I really, so I really like that. I think it's, um, it's a, there's a good lesson in there, um, and Saul, you know, Saul keeps coming back to David, and so yeah, my point is, David is he's, he's ever loving, he's sort of he's ever forgiveful when it comes to Saul, but it's not f from naivety, you know. David is he knows what he's doing, he's he's very careful and cautious, um, but he he makes you know the decision not to harm Saul, and this happens a few times. Um, and so every time Saul is very, really embarrassed by the fact that he's been driven by his paranoia and his jealousy and, you know, the the, the, the counsel of his advisors to, you know, 
go and hunt David when David has been like a son to him, really. Um, so it's a, it's a very, very interesting relationship that Saul and David have. Um, so David's... What I do like about these stories, you know, you, you wouldn't really expect it, but they, they're so sort of... The characters are so complex and the relationships between each other. Compared to, you know, like compared to modern even to modern fantasy writings or something. It's like, David's no Aragorn, you know what I mean? Like, David's got a lot of flaws. He's a, he's got some really, there's some, you know, there's some great, he's got, there's a lot of good to him, but there's also a lot of bad. And the same can be said of Saul. Like, Saul was appointed by God to be king of Israel because he was a righteous man. Um, and he always was sort of righteous right until his end. He was, it, it, his flaws did bring him down, but... He wasn't, he isn't just a, 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 it would have been easy to see our future generations if, if they didn't like the reign of Saul, how they could have propagandized him or mis or characterized him as an evil tyrant king. But Saul is a much more complex character than that. And, you know, even to this day, Jewish people are given the name Saul. So that just shows you that he wasn't, he wasn't just a tyrant king or whatever. And, uh, spoiler alert, if you haven't read uh, these books of the bible but when it's a very tragic scene Saul is defeated and it's very moving when he's defeated and killed and you know David really laments for him it's it's such a tragic story it's really a story of more than a story of dynastic warfare it's a it's a real personal story as well you know because David really loves Saul he loves Jonathan who, who also dies when uh Saul is defeated it's a really heartbreaking and sort of emotional tale. And with regards to David's complexity, I really enjoy David as a character. I'm really enjoying reading the story of David. It's got so many ups and downs. Um, it, w it would be great to, if they made like a... I don't know why there aren't more like films and TV shows about the Bible. I guess it's because before we had modern media, it's almost too sacred to touch. Because, you know, the West was you know majority Christian. Maybe it was considered too sacred to touch or make ad adaptions of it um and then s since the west is secularized it's not as if we had the opportunity to, to do this because people aren't christian so they've got no interest in adapting these stories they've got uh you know the, you know they're all they're openly antagonistic to christianity so we just haven't when we we haven't had a chance to really have like lots of great adaptions of these tales except maybe in operas and things um but I've, it would, you know, the story of David, it's got so many ups and downs and twists and turns and so many interesting characters who come in and out. It would make a great sort of Game, Game of Thrones type TV show, you know, and so many sort of, you know, moral messages in there as well. Uh, you could have a, you could have a, and the story, David himself as a character is so interesting and complex. I, 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 I appreciate David as a character, I really do, because, because he's got this complexity to him. He's a, you know, in a way, he is a bit of an idiot. You can kind of empathise with him, like, when, <laughs> I think, like, I, I, occasions that have really struck out to me, like, really strong images that have stuck in my head. The image of David pretending to be a madman to, you know, to, because uh, he thinks, I think he goes to a king for sort of a sanctuary, but he, he thinks the king is going to kill him, so he pretends to be a madman or something like that. That really stuck out to me, so he's just sort of dribbling over his beard and, you know, things like that. 
Um, and another moment that stuck out to me is David dancing before the Ark of the Covenant. It's so such a strange image to see a king, a king dance. That's not really something. There's not a public spectacle that we we have anymore uh, with regards to our leaders. Really, I don't. I can't think of a a ritual where we demand that our our, our leaders would dance. I don't. I don't think that's ever been the case in European history, you know. I think it's quite powerful. It's a powerful image to see the leader of your nation dance, you know, do this very intimate sort of emotional emotional act, you know. It's almost really a display of their humanity, you know. Maybe we should get our leaders to dance a bit more, you know, do a ceremonial dance at their coronation or something. I think it's quite a powerful image, so that stri- strikes out to me. But when David does this dance, uh, his wife Mikal... I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right. Maybe it's like Mitchell or something. Um, but his wife, Mikal, um, who was the daughter of Saul. So obviously she's going to have mixed opinions of David. And she was she was actually happy, happily married to someone else. But then David steals her away from her husband. And it's a really terrible scene because her husband's weeping. You know, that is, is so they obviously loved each other. You know, it's really horrible. But anyway, Mikal gets jealous because she thinks David is dancing for other women when actually he's dancing before, you know, the Ark of the Covenant, he's dancing for the Lord. And so they have a spat, basically, and then David says, basically, well, I guess it must have, in, in, it's written very, very dryly in the, in the King James Bible, but your, your imagination can fill in the gaps, and you imagine it was a little spat between them, and because of this, David says, you know what, because of this, I'm just never going to sleep with you again, basically, and you're not going to have any children by me, and she never does. So he's kind of, he can be childish like that, you know, he can be, he can be an idiot, but that makes him more interesting, you know, he's a, he's a, he's a complex character, and he's got a lot of flaws, as well as goodness as well, um, and obviously there's the obvious example, I think I mentioned this in my last podcast, um, he notices, uh, Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, um, bathing from his balcony, and then he just, you know, sleeps with her, and then he has Uriah, sent to the front line of the battle and killed, um, which is a horrible thing to do. And unlike when he stole, un- unlike when he s- steals uh, Mikal from her husband, I don't think where I'm at in the story that hasn't been rectified yet, and I don't know if it will be. But God punishes him for what he does with Bathsheba, um, and you know he really, really repents before the Lord, especially when, because uh, God takes away the child of Bathsheba um, as punishment. But you really get a sense of... It's very, it's very powerful. You, like, you get a sense of David's repentance, and you get, there's very powerful lines in that, in that scene where he's repenting before the Lord and describing the Lord's you know, majesty and how he's incomparable, you know. And you get a real strong description of sort of the power of monotheism. And it's very poignant as well when, you know, God take God kills the child um, that is produced from, you know, David and Bathsheba's adultery. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's very sad. David fasts, you know, he starves himself um, in order to perhaps avert the child's death. But God takes the child anyway. Um, but then you also get a sense of the justice of God as well. Like God is won't let David get away with, you know, this horrible thing he's done to Uriah by sleeping with his wife and having him killed. Like, 
Um, and the, 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 also, God takes away David and Bathsheba's child, but he also allows them to have another one. And the the new one is Solomon, who will later become David's heir, you know. So it's a lot... Really, it's I love the way it sort of combines the personal with the political, which I think with a lot of political drama, it can be quite dry, but the personal is so perfectly interwoven with the political. It's, it's, you know, it's basically the same thing. It's, a, it's perfectly inter, interwoven. It's, it's both a sociological story and a psychological story in one, you know. So that's very, it's very powerful. Where I'm up to now, um, it's it's the story of David and Absalom is just beginning, which is another like powerful, poignant story. Basically, um, I don't want to dwell on this too long, but uh, it's kind of gross actually. David, one of David's sons, Amnon, he's sort of lusting after his half sister. Um, I think her name. Gosh, I can't remember her name. I think her name is Tamar. Um, he's lusting after his half-sister, and he ends up raping her. Um, and and after he's raped her, he sort of... Um, he sort of... He, uh, perhaps he's disgusted by what he's done and how he had to force himself on her. So he ends up sort of blaming her and hating her. And then she says, you know, this what you've done to me, rebuking me like this is worse than, you know, the rape itself. Like, almost... It's almost as if, like, you know, you you don't even have the decency to, like, marry me or whatever or, you know, look after me. But whatever. It's quite quite grotesque. And so Tamar's brother is named Absalom, another one of David's children. Um, and, you know, I... At this point in the story, I don't know what Absalom's going to do next, but... I feel for Absalom, like, his sister's just been raped by his half-brother, um, and she was a virgin as well, you know, she has to take off her, sort of, garments, which are of many colours, which are sort of a symbol of chastity, um, so it's a, it's a big deal what's been done to her, um, and it's a rape as well, it's not like just, it's, it's not just like fornication or whatever, it's, it's, a. Uh, it's a really an incestuous rape. It's as, as bad as you can get. So I really empathise with Absalom. He's not too happy with his brother, his half brother Amnon. Um, but he's very, he's very uh, sly about it. He waits two years, and he invite. I think he invites Amnon to a, a get together of some sort, and then he has him killed. Um, and obviously. So I, I empathise with Absalom, actually, honestly. He may have been his half-brother, but come on, like, he was... Really, what Amnon did was grotesque. Um, anyway, so then... And then he, Absalom runs into exile. And to cut a long story, story short, you know, David is in a difficult situation. Like, his son Amnon raped his daughter, Tamar, and then his other son, Absalom, killed Amnon in revenge. You know, how is, what is a father to do to make sense of that it's a, such a difficult situation like nobody's really in the wrong except perhaps Amon, Amnon but you know David David you know would have loved Amnon because Amnon was his son despite being a rapist um so so yeah Absalom's in exile but basically long story short he's in exile for a while he's eventually allowed back to Jerusalem but then he remains in Jerusalem for two years without being able to see his father again um, and then Absalom sort of burns the field of one of his father's advisors, Joab, as if to say, like, I've 
why have you invited me back to Jerusalem just when I can't even see my father's face, you know? But if, where I'm up to at the story now, you know, it's a quite a beautiful, poignant moment where David sort of kisses Absalom as if to say, you know, you are forgiven, you know? So it, the, the stories are so bound up, the political aspect of these stories are so bound up in sort of a, bound up in the personal. They're very, very heartfelt sort of personal stories, you know, really emotional. I, I'm, I'm not, I'm not sure what happens next. That's, that's as far as I've got. I, I know that Absalom rebels against his father, though, so it's gonna, you know, the roller coaster is gonna keep on going. It's gonna, there's gonna be a, it's quite exciting actually, because I know there's gonna be a rebellion on the horizon, you know. So that'll be the next few, the next few chapters. But you know, it's very, very exciting. It would make such a good TV show, you know, the story of David. Um, it's, it is a shame we don't have more adaptions of these works because, as I said, our ancestors probably would have thought them too sacred to sort of adapt in literary format, you know, with, with some exception. Um, whereas modern people are just apathetic towards them, if not out, outright hostile. So we've never had that opportunity to sort of adapt them into into works of literature and things, and into, into other works of art, especially, you know, films and films and TV shows and things. And if they did, you know, it'd probably be and probably they'd probably bastardize it in some way, try and make it edgy. Try and they'd probably make David and Jonathan gay and, you know I don't think you need to do any of that. Like the stories have got enough sort of debauchery in them as they are, you know, there's plenty you don't need to change them really. You can use a little dramatic license. Like I was I was designing when I was thinking about this because I've you know I've got such an imagination. I'm always I conceptualize like a new TV show or um, film or story every day, you know. So I was I was conceptualizing, um, conceptualizing like you know a little TV show, Game of Thrones style TV show based on the story of King David, um, and you know I thought I thought you know it would be a good scene if uh, it would probably it would begin it would obviously it would go through the whole life of David so it would begin in the reign of King Saul and it would begin with the sort of downfall of Saul. Saul wouldn't want, you know, I talked about this in my in the last podcast, Saul refusing to kill or failing to kill all the Amalekites. Um, and then so in, in, the, in the Bible, Samuel takes the king of the Amalekites, I think he takes him somewhere else and then he kills him. But it would be a good scene if, if when Samuel is confronting Saul over his failure to enact God's command, he just takes a knife and he just slits the king of the Amalekites' throat. You know, that would be a cool scene. So a little dramatic license in order to enhance the story, I think, you know, that'd be permitted, you know what I mean? Um, but apart from that, you don't really need to make much changes, really. You just need to make it flow. Um, but it's, uh, it's a pretty good story just from reading it in sort of the King James Bible. You can, you can really get into it. But it, it's such a good story because you can, like Game of Thrones, I guess, which is why I make the comparison, you can, every character's got good and evil inside them, you know what I mean? You can really empathise with all the characters. I, I like David. I'm not sure I like David because he's a bit of an arsehole and he's a bit of an idiot. But he, you know, he's got some good aspects as well. He's a good protagonist. Um, he's a, he's a, somewhat of an. He's on the right. It's a, he's such a difficult character, and that's what makes him interesting. But I empathise with some of his em- enemies, you know, as well, like Mikal, his wife, you know, who's completely hard done by. You know, she she was married to David, and then she was married to another man. And then David just takes her back from this other man, and this guy, poor guy is like weeping as 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 his his wife is taken from her. And then he, David doesn't even give her any children. He doesn't after she accuses him of being a flirt. He he just neglects her, 
Um, so I em- empathise with her, and of course I empathise with Absalom as well. He was doing right by his sister. Um, I empathise with King Saul. He wasn't, you know, he wasn't all bad as a monarch. Um, he, was a, he was a good man, and he was in a difficult situation. He was perhaps paranoid and jealous and fearful of David. So you can, you know, there's that's what made, that's just like Game of Thrones. It's you can it's it's such a rich story with so many sort of complex and interesting characters, and you can empathise with each side. You know, I think, it'd, and of course, that then also on top of that, unlike Game of Thrones, or perhaps you know, all stories have a, a sort of spiritual theme or psychological or sort of all you can derive lessons from every story. You know, that's why they exist as stories. You know, that is pretty much the purpose of storytelling is to, it's a sort of archaic, primal means of delivering information. Um, so th- there are, you know, messages that can be gleaned from Game of Thrones, but, you know, this is the Bible we're talking about, you know, there are definitely, you know, spiritual, real spiritual messages in there as well, so. But apart from that, it would just make a, a good TV show. So if anyone at the BBC wants to hire me to make that, then I'd be quite happy to. Another thing I've noticed, I'm sorry, I won't dwell on this for much longer, but it, um, something I've noticed, uh, I was, the story of Saul and David felt very familiar, and then I realised Samuel the prophet, who obviously, he's, you know, he's, he's the one who anoints Saul and he anoints David, he's, he's basically Merlin, isn't he? Um, and then Saul, you know, the, the king the 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 king who fails basically he's not exactly a, a baddie you know he's but he you know he it's his his failures you know which cause the end of his reign he's basically Uther King Drag Uther Pendragon you know and then obviously David is King Arthur is sort of the archetypal perfect or, or king or maybe not perfect you know he has got some flaws but he's like he's a great king um so you that that you can really make that comparison to the Arthurian legend Samuel as Merlin, uh, Uther Pendragon, uh, Saul as Uther Pendragon, and David as King Arthur. I don't know, there's some, a real parallel there. Especially in the way that, you know, Samuel, Saul falls out of favour with Samuel, and then Samuel goes off to anoint David, you know. It's it's very interesting. Sort of, it's almost perhaps a, the same archetypal story, but told in in different cultures. Or maybe perhaps the biblical story influenced, perhaps to some degree, the Arthurian story. Or maybe they just sprung up, you know, as an archetypal story in, in two different cultures. That's very interesting. I might go back to talking about spiritual thoughts in a second, um, but I think uh, I would just like to mention the fact that I've started my own political party called the Progressive Party, or the Progressive Party of Great Britain. Um so yeah i've just i've just started it basically and i i thought i'd mention it people have been asking me about it um so i made a few tweets when i was sort of conceptualizing it um so i'll 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 read those out i know it's very lazy whenever i read tweets out on on my podcast i'm getting better i'm trying to i'm trying to phrase thing phrase things in my own in my own words you know but I, I said a, a while back, early September, I said, I don't think it'd be too difficult for us to make a sort of progressive party just to use it as a platform to promote our ideas. It might be quite fun. We don't have to aim to win seats in Westminster at the moment. We can just have conferences, network, do speeches, 
cause a little controversy, make a few memes, might get in a few papers. It's a start and wouldn't cost too much. So and then I and then I made some basic principles for the for the Progressive Party. Old media would be rejected and new media embraced. It would be experimental, artistic, futurist. Why while IRL conferences and meetups are desirable, sensible caution should be taken and online anonymous participation would be vital. It would be radical but you know not in a fashy or wiganatty way. Very important we get those those aesthetics right. Um, older people can still participate, obviously. I'm not going to be an ageist about it, but the leadership must be youthful. Um, and the goal should be... Yeah, the goal should not be winning seats at Westminster. The aim should be to make a statement, to bring our ideas to a wider audience, to radicalise. I envision this as a, the precursor to a winning movement. So that's basically... That's basically what what I'm trying to do with this this new party that I've created. That's my, those are my aims, and those are my sort of the limitations of it. What I've delineated should be, you know, what we should be aiming for. So, a few more, a few more. When I was thinking about, yeah, a few more tweets I'll read out. If you try to infiltrate a pre-established boomer party, whether that be the Tories, the SDP, reclaim or reform. You will sacrifice your youthful vitality and image. You will be forced to make speeches about maglevs alongside Lawrence Fox talking about the wokes. Not worth it. We need a new party, a new youthful movement, totally unattached and disassociated from anything in the past. A new vibe. Image is very important, possibly the most important thing. You understand this when you're an artist. Has any youth counterculture succeeded by associating, at least publicly associating, with crusty old men? Stop LARPing as boomers and, and stop trying to be seen as moderate or professional, at least at this stage. We need radicalism, excitement and innovation. Trying to pander to the great British public will only dilute and cauterize everything we believe in. The great British public don't believe in anything anyway. Our goal at the moment should be influencing or radicalizing them rather than vice versa. So yeah, that's that's really that's really what I'm aim, aiming for with this progressive party that I've started. It'd be very sort of you know I've I've tried I've tried the infiltration thing, trying to infiltrate these boomer parties. People are like desperately trying to do it with like the SCP or the Workers Party or whatever. It just it just strikes me as fundamentally flawed. I think image is very important. And what what we just need is a new energy, you know, a new energy and new vibe. Um, I I think that's that's all that's really the most important thing, and that will sort of carry us through. Um. So yeah, I wanted I was I was kind of uh, expecting more people to sort of be very pessimistic about this, you know, like sort of call me a, a larper or whatever, or be be more negative about it. There's this this trend in sort of British sort of political Twitter, right wing Twitter, to sort of um sort of, I don't know, just total sort of blackpilling sort of pessimism and, you know, just to treat any attempt to actually do something sort of proactive as, as you know, a fed, you know, they just call you a fed or, or, or a glowy or whatever, you know, even when you're not even asking them to divulge any, you know, personal information or to dox themselves, you know, which I'm not, which I was very, which is why I was very keen to stress, you know, online anonymous participation must be vital, you know, under, you know, the present legal environment, you know. 
so so yeah, I was I was pretty I was I was happy actually, and then there was the the response has been overall pretty positive really and a lot of people are quite enthusiastic about it i think a lot of people are, are like me they're kind of sick of sort of pandering to these boomer parties you know a black pilling moment for me was like when after the, you know the, the completely media created sort of fake wave of racism that apparently occurred after england lost the european championship you know when george even people like george galloway you know leader of the workers party which I'd been a member of for a while in the hopes that I could perhaps turn some part of it into a sort of authentic sort of grassroots Brex Bowl movement. But um, even he was like joining all the right wing boomers and sort of saying we should all oh, we should have a, a, a you know social media license if you use the internet. You know, boomers are so afraid of technology, and they're so I don't want to get too much into it because just even talking about these boomer political figures they just bore me. You know what I mean? Like. It's utterly boring. Lawrence Fox talking about the wokes. It's so utterly boring, and there's such a lack of virility. And I think we really shoot ourselves in the foot by trying to, you know, try associating, just associating ourselves with these people, you know, because then it just gives leftists an excuse to like say, oh, we, oh, you were, uh, you're, you know, you're, you're a member of uh, reform, the reform party, are you? Oh, you must, you know, Nigel Farage, UKIP, you know, Brexit means Brexit, gammon, blah, blah, blah. You know, it just gives them an excuse to associate you with these people and make fun of you and sort of discredit you and ridicule, ridicule you, you know? This is what, this is the real, you know, this is what, I've, this is the real problem of feds, really. Not to accuse people like Lawrence Fox of being feds or whatever, but they might as well be, you know what I mean? Like, to be this embarrassing, <laughs> to embarrass us like this. It's really, re image is really important. People like BAP understand this, because they're all about the aesthetics, you know. I, it's hard for me to put it into words when you're talking about images, because obviously, that's, you know, we're talking about images, it's a, I'm talking about magic here, you know, meme magic, you know, but it's a, the right has always succeeded on, 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 on aesthetics, you know what I mean? That's, our war has always been a meme war, it's always been an aesthetic war. So it's difficult for me to put it into words, but image is probably more important than words, you know. If you have a good image, a good aesthetic, that will win more, you know, good propaganda, a good vibe. That will win over more, that will win over hearts, you know. We may, and that's, that. the heart, you need to get to people's hearts before you can reach the brain. This is well known in, well known in psychology, as people like Jonathan Haidt have um, pointed out. Um... So yeah, that's what I'm trying to aim with this progressive party. So I'm glad the response has been mostly positive, you know. Um, and I've just all it is at the moment. I've made a little Twitter page for it. More some some stuff is you know is is going to be on the horizon. So please follow at progressivesgb on Twitter. That's the Twitter page. Um, I want to because I, as I said, I think aesthetics are so important. I want to. I know a lot, I have a good, a lot of, you know, good artist friends, I want to sort of start hiring people to make propaganda and things, sharing some cool aesthetics, you know, some cool creative endeavours, um, and then, you know, we can, we can start talking about sort of, you know, I don't want to be accused, again, don't want to be accused of being a fed, but for the people who know each other and trust each other, we can have some meetings, you know, meet up, do some cool things, you know, go hiking or whatever, it's, 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 we can do some exciting things. I've basically made a platform, it's going to be very, 
grassroots in the sense is grassroots within sort of Anglo or progressive nationalist Twitter um, in the sense that I'm not, I'm not, you know, me personally, I'm good at organizing things, things. I just want to be the organizer of this. You know what I mean? I'm just, I've created a platform for, for you to use, you know, I've created a political party for us to affiliate ourselves with. So it's not going to be grassroots in the sense, it's not going to be for like the common normie, if you know what I mean, the common boomer con or whatever, but for people on Anglo Twitter, for people for, or progressive nationalists, you know, it's, it's grassroots for you guys, like, I'll be hopefully like retweeting your ideas, you know. So I see so many sort of brilliant ideas on Anglo Twitter every day, um, brilliant concepts of what we can do to you know improve this country. You know, building maglevs and reforesting, you know, the glens and things like this. Um, it's that's that's where our energy lies, and so I kind of want it to be sort of decentralized in that sense, um, and and. So in that sense, grassroots. Grassroots among us, basically. Uh, not among sort of normies. But that's that's kind of what, what I... That's kind of what I'm envisioning. And it's got... So it's got no formal membership apparatus at the moment. So you are a member if you say, you say you're a member. And, you know, I agree that you're a member. I don't want, you know, random... I don't want, like, random, like, fed to, like, say they're a member and then shoot up, you know, shoot up somewhere, you know. You're, you're a member if... You say you're a member, and then the 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 inner inner council of the Progressive Party agrees that you're a member. But basically, yeah, it's very decentralized, sort of very uh, populist or not, populist among ourselves. Um, very free and easy, if that makes sense. Not too rigid in anything, really. So much, so much of our movement is sort of bogged down by sort of rigidity and sort of autism and larping as boomers and things and stuffiness. I hate all that. It's going to be the opposite of that. It's going to be free and liberated and youthful and vital. It's all about vitality, youthful vi- youthful vitality. That's that's the that's the only th- that's what we've got as young people with sort of youthful ideas that that's our key to success really. That's what we've got going for us and we shouldn't sacrifice that by joining these ancient boomer parties like the SDP, the Workers Party, you know, Lawrence Fox or whatever. You know the the S the look at the SDP. It's a it's a, it's a, it's it's so geriatric. It's a with all due respect to William Clouston, who's the leader who follows me, and you know many other members of the SDP who follow me. It's a party that it's 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 a, it's larping as a party that dissolved before most of us were born. You know what I mean? A failed party that dissolved before most of us were born. It's it's to- toxic for you to even associate yourself with that aesthetic really it's can't think of a single youthful counterculture as i said in my tweets i can't think of a single youthful counterculture in history that has succeeded by at least publicly associating with stuffy old men you're just ruining the vibe that way you know um of course you know the 60s counterculture the 60s cultural revolution it was led publicly by young men you know people like Jimi hendrix or whatever but man you know behind closed doors you have people like foucault um, so that's why, you know, I say, of course, we can have older people in our movement, um, but publicly, at least, it's got to have a fresh face, you know, this is really important. Um, but, you know, behind closed doors, we can, we'll can we have, you know, the ghosts of sort of right wing academics and intellectuals, you know, you know, we'll, we'll, we have that behind us and 
older people can be part of the movement. You know, I, I embrace that. But the leadership, the public face, you know, like Jimi Hendrix or whatever, that has to be youthful. That has to be that has to be our narrative. You know what I mean? It's all about narratives, all about aesthetics. That's the path of victory because human beings think with their hearts before they think with their minds. And we've got to realise this if we're ever going to succeed. So that's the Progressive Party. As I said, it's just, a, you know, I started a Twitter page. The response has been very enthusiastic. Um, it's very, it's going to be decentralised. You're a member if you say you're a member. Um, I want it to be very loose and easy and sort of a hub of sort of creativity. I don't want it to be stuffy and sort of Tory-like. Um, I don't want us to sort of LARP as boomers. I want it to be fun. I want it to be fun and we can have a good time, you know. I don't, and I don't want us to aim immediately to win seats in council elections or whatever the fuck. I couldn't care less about that sort of thing. That's just, that's just geriatric think thinking, you know what I mean? If you really want to be revolutionary, we shouldn't bother with any of that. We shouldn't care about that. That's where real, real power lies, is, is in not caring about such things. Because once you say, you know, the SDP say, we're going to, we're going to, um, you know, we're going to win. Uh, you know, the, 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 it's obvious to everyone that there's no the SDP aren't ever going to win in, in Westminster. You know what I mean? They're never going to win in Westminster, and that's immediately blackpilling. Same with UKIP or or Reform UK or whatever. And the, the public know that, and that's back blackpilling. So we don't want to be that kind of political party. We'll just depress ourselves if we set these unrealistic targets you know what i mean but what we want to be instead we want to be more of a pressure not really, even a pressure group really because we're not we, we, we want to be a hub we want to be a th think you could call it a think tank or or a counterculture you know what i mean that's what we need to be that's the stage we're at which is why i said in my tweets i don't foresee i don't see this as the party that wins an election at westminster you know what i mean but i see this maybe as the precursor to a winning movement we are you know we are we are the precursors. I think that's how I see it. So maybe the Progressive Party, maybe this will last for like five years and then it will dissolve somehow, you know. Um, and, but then a new party comes along. It's called like the the Progressive People's Party and it emerges out of the, the relic of the Progressive Party. But then that goes on to become a huge sort of movement because by that point we would have persuaded more norm you know we would have persuaded more of the general population persuaded more normies and young people of our of our ideas and they would have seep seeped into the rest of the sort of body politic um and that's that's how a successful movement is born another thing i you know i dislike about the sdp is is is, is as i said in those tweets is is it's it's trying so desperately to appear moderate you know to to, to appear moderate and professional but that's just it just shows a lack of vitality it's a fundamental misunderstanding of how democracy works democracy most people don't most normies don't give a shit about politics they don't care about it it's it's you they don't really have any real opinions of their own you see this whenever a poll comes out you ask british people anything about the nhs you can use it to justify anything you know this is a fundamental misunderstanding that you need to appear moderate and listen to what the british people want british people don't believe in anything okay we don't need to the British if you if the British it was up to the you know your average British mum to decide what to do, then we'd become like a totalitarian NHS state that, you know, has man mandatory vaccinations for cats and dogs, you know what I mean? Just forget about that. What the the what, what politics is decided by a tiny fraction of the population, you know, 
you may be like even less than one percent. If we persuade even less than one percent, then boom, you know, we've got we've got Britain in our hands. You know what I mean? It's it's decided by a battle between different factions of the intelligentsia, and that's what we need to be focusing on. We need to be focusing in expounding our our ideas to other people, not not to not pandering to normies. That's a complete inverse of what politics really is. You don't want to pander to normies. You want to expound your ideas and win the sort of ideological battle against other factions of the intelligentsia. And that way, you will achieve power. So yeah, that's the Progressive Party. I would kind of feel free to contact me if you want to, you know, volunteer your services, take part in any way you can. As I said, I'm going to probably commission artists to make some cool propaganda, some cool aesthetics. You know, we can maybe between the ones of us who already know each other and trust each other, we'll have, in you know, meetings in real life. We'll uh, do some cool things together, go hiking or whatever. I don't know. It's going to be, I think, the a, a, an issue is going to be, or a fun issue, like something to to balance is to sort of balance the 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 of, of the of the sort of the new of the new right. Is to sort of balance uh, the right wing hippie with the. Uh, with the progressive nationalist, you know, try and balance that. But I think that's fun, you know. That's uh, 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 that. I think you know. I'm 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 quite hippie-ish in my beliefs. You know, I, I'm part right-wing hippie, but I'm also very futuristic as well. You know, my ideal Britain would be neo-gothic sort of mega cities surrounded by acres and acres of you know rewilded British rainforest. You know what I mean? So yeah, it's it'll be fun. I mean, it's just it. If, Fun is a really important part of this. It's got to be fun. It mustn't be stuffy or stale in any way. It's got to be vital and fun. And we just have fun, express our ideas uh, and our feelings. And in in loads of cool ways, we'll, some of us will meet up, those who feel, feel comfortable doing it and trust each other. But there's got to be plenty of room for, you know, Anon online artists as well, you know. And um, we'll share some cool art and aesthetics and just have you know good vibes and things and that's what i'm looking for really um so yeah but that, that's the progressive party and, and we're our at is at progressives gb on twitter and i'll probably make a website or a link tree at some point as i said i want it i want it to embrace new media um be very futuristic and youthful so we probably will do things a little differently to like the old parties of our, of our parents like the tories or the lib dems or whatever you know, maybe we won't even have a website because they're a pain to build and finance anyway. Maybe we'll just have a link tree. You know what I mean? Things like that. Well, our manifesto will be broadcast on TikTok. You know, this is this is our mindset we've got to have. We've got to have a futurist mindset. I think the futurists are a real inspiration in this regard. Um, so yeah, that's that's what we should be looking to do. Before I get back into discussing religion, I've got so much to talk about really i might split this podcast up into two episodes maybe i'll i'll leave some of the stuff i intended to talk about until until you know next week um but there's some pictures going around twitter recently of sort of the new water fountains that have been erected around london um they're very ugly little plastic things and people were comparing that to sort of traditional water fountains most of which by the modern day are defunct you know but you know they're they're quite beautiful. You know these old old stone water fountains. Compare that to these modern little hydration stations. You know that they've built around London. You know they're so kitsch and plastic and ugly. Um, and people were debating like why this is, 
And I think a big part of it is sort of committee government. I as as I I, I talked about this in my last podcast. I really, the more I think about it, the more my ideology just becomes absolute rule by individuals. You know. I really um. Because it's only individuals have coherent, rational worldviews. Only individuals can think. Committees don't think. They're just a a babble of different individuals dragging the state in different directions and it just becomes incoherent um and so you can tell like a committee came up with these hydration stations they don't care if they look aesthetically pleasing they don't you know they don't care if they're ugly or whatever or if they've got microplastics in the water all they care is uh, is the look it just sounds good and it's something a committee can agree on you know uh so it's nothing gets done with committee rule and when it does get done it's sort of pandering or unesthetic or you know it, or it doesn't really matter you know what i mean like it's just something that the media something that looks good that the committee can universally agree oh yeah water fountains hydration stations yeah you know we can agree on that you know it's 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 such an inept form of government so my my ideology i hope i'm explaining myself well but i think i really think that's why these fountains look so ugly today compared to the old stone fountains of the past um yeah i think because uh, uh, yeah i think that my point is if i'm coming across explaining myself well committees you know groups of people can't have taste you know what i mean it's only it's only an individual only an individual can have taste you know have good taste um if, if we if if if, if in, instead of committee endless line of committees ruling this country from top to bottom, you know, borough councils and whatnot. If we maybe we had a had an elected dictator for each each county, then maybe you know, with all this with power to actually do things and enact things, then you know they can make mistakes for sure. But at least they'd be governing according to a sort of coherent worldview, and they would be able to have their own aesthetic taste, which may not be the best aesthetic taste, but at least it would be something. You know, it wouldn't just be some tacky little tacky little token for the media to lap up like a hydration station or whatever you know it would be a proper beautiful fountain you know i hope i'm explaining myself well here but i think i really think that so much of the problems of the modern west are due to committee due to this kind of democracy i really i have no respect for parliamentary democracy and sort of committee rule and anything whatsoever it's it's got to be ruled by individuals individuals can make mistakes but uh, at least they know what they're doing and they're going in, in in some direction. And at least they're accountable as well. Like, no one's going to get blamed for these ugly little water fountains, you know. Because nobody came up with them. It was a group. It was it was the blob that invented them. Whereas an individual is at least accountable. You can, even if he's a tyrant, you can at least name him. You can name Augustus, you know. Augustus is the one who oppresses me. Not, not a thousand sort of shadowy senators who know, you know. It's the problem with modern sort of modern modern liberal democracies all over. The democracy is just a shadowy oligarchy that whips the people to and fro using the media as an instrument, which is financed by you know our real rulers, and even they're a sort of, a sort of mess, a, a blob, you know, a shadowy blob. We're ruled by a shadowy blob. Anyway. I've got a, maybe a few other tweets to read out. I'm sorry for doing this. It's a very lazy of me. I kind of like doing it, though, because it uh, because my tweets are deleted every month. 
So by se- by reading them here, it's almost like I'm preserving them. You know what I mean? Um, that's I'm I'm that big-headed. I think I I'm I made this comment a while uh, a few weeks ago. I don't mind language preservation slash revival efforts and LARP, so long as they aren't used to justify devolution or succession. All native British people understand the English language. Speaking Cornish or Manx is okay as a hobby, but don't use it to excuse the breakup of our nation. Yeah, and these were my thoughts on committee, committee government. Again, while individuals can no doubt have bad taste, it strikes me that this sort of ugliness is mostly a result of committee rule. Committees do not have taste. They are a gaggle of people with different interests who just want to see the job done. Remakes and reboots, general cultural stagnation, are an aspect of gerontocracy. Who wants to watch a West Side Story remake by an 80-year-old director? Yeah, it's uh, all the stuff at the cinema at the moment, you know, Ghostbusters remake, a West Side Story remake. It's all very, it's all very stale. Um, doesn't feel like it's being made for me, you know what I mean? Like, I really don't, I really don't care. It's not really eliciting any nostalgia in me. Regarding, here are some interesting thoughts. You could easily turn Britain into a dictatorship. All you need to do is hire a good spin doctor to put a muzzle on the media. Our constitution is already in tatters. A prime minister could start ruling through orders in council without parliament's consent. Britain is still an absolute monarchy in theory. It's just that the powers of the monarch are de facto executed by parliament and occasionally the prime minister alone through orders in council. This is our great strength. Based Britain lies just beneath the surface. I have no love for the House of Saxe Coburg and Gotha, but maybe we should relent from calling for its abolition before Majid Nawaz forces a barnstorming federal republic on us with a codified democratic constitution. That truly would be unreformable and hopeless. Those are interesting thoughts, you know. We are. A progressive nationalist government could have a lot, you know, constitutionally could just, you know, it's a, it's Britain's strength that we have such a sort of flimsy constitution that we could. It's you know, Britain is still an absolute monarchy. And a, a progressive nationalist prime minister could rule without parliament if he so wished, using orders in council, um, and is the, the only barrier really to any sort of change and real change in action in Britain is the media, and they can be controlled through a spin doctor. So I think I think that's a that's a white pill. That's a cause for hope, you know. Uh, it w- of course, it would be flushed out the window if Britain just became some sort of shabby little federal republic, you know, like so many Brit poppers want. You know, this is the reason. I think someone on Twitter put it like this: they want to reestablish the the, the reestablish the EU within the British Isles, which you know the federalism of the EU within the British Isles. Which would make any real change impossible. It would just it would it would solidify the stagnation. You know what I mean? Constitutionalize it. At the very least, in Britain, what we have we have these mechanisms. We have this hidden absolute monarchy just below the surface that has been constrained by Parliament. But you know, if if a, a progressive prime minister could quite easily quite easily you know as long as the, as long as you put a muzzle on the media through a spin you know which you can do through a spin doctor like Alistair Campbell or whatever um he could just rule through orders in council and get all sorts of you know positive change done so I think that's a real cause for cause for hope
Someone on Twitter said, Britain not having a late-night cafe culture is one of the things I hate most about it. I hate this sort of sycophancy for, you know, continental sycophancy. This makes no sense to me, because why would you... Why would you want to drink coffee so late in the evening? It would just keep you up all night. It's not very terribly healthy. I think a cosy late-night drinks in a quiet pub seems far, far preferable. I think... And pubs aren't... Don't have to be... I think they've been parodies as sort of saloons but in recent years, but they don't have to be sort of unintellectual places, you know. Where did the Inklings envision their most brilliant stories, you know? Where was the discovery of DNA first announced? It was announced in a pub, you know? A pub can be an excellent sort of home for intellectuals. It has great intellectual potential. Seuds, paedophiles, and pansies, in love with continental ways, cannot recognise this. I think there's much to be said for sort of quiet drinks in a, in a quiet pub. They can be found, you know. You don't have to go binge drinking in a pub. It's not a saloon. Anyway. I'll, I'll, I'll stop reading these tweets out in a second. Just a few more few more comments that I've made over the, over the last few weeks. Dan Snow, as always, is sort of making ridiculous comments about how in, in the 1700s, Britain was, you know, as multicultural as it is today. So I, I replied to him, These people are so dishonest. Britain was a largely homogenous nation until the 1950s, and this is set to change in coming decades. This is as plain as the sun is in the sky. It's living memory, amazed at how far the human imagination is able to stretch itself to suit ideology. And someone responded, saying, Britain was a homogenous society till the early 1990s, 94% reported as being white, British, or Irish. To which I responded, this kind of puts things in perspective. Multiculturalism was a policy enacted by our parents' generation and was an immediately obvious failure, yet they've continued it anyway. To make them feel better about squandering their children's inheritance, they like to forget we exist or pretend we're all universally okay with it. Gen Z is always portrayed by the geriatric media as hip Americanized multicultural youths excited about KFC or Perry salts. This betrayal completely, intentionally ignores white Zuma boys watching the so-called white nationalist PewDiePie or sharing so-called far-right hate symbol Pepe. Young indigenous Britons do actually exist, and at some point we may get a little angry at what has been inflicted upon us. The entire colonial discourse used to shame and browbeat young white people like a hectoring old aunt is itself geriatric. Only our grandparents have any memory of empire, and it is ridiculous to talk of any lingering privileges when the young are so utterly bereft of opportunity. Same with sort of the racism discourse as well. Like, it's it's a completely it's all very well like if there was a sort of someone calling themselves like an indigenous English rights activist in the 1990s, you know, it would be very, very you know, logical to suspect them of being you know a secret neo-Nazi, but. We're in a completely different ethnic situation today than we were in the 1990s, isn't it? you know. If someone calling themselves an English indigenous rights activist today, you know, are perfectly reasonable, because it's, it's, it's statistically accurate that, you know, British people are becoming sort of, if not a minority, then at least a plurality in their own homeland, you know. The ethnic situation has entirely changed. You can't... It's not reasonable anymore to accuse people, English or British nationalists, you know, concerned... With, it's not reasonable anymore to con, to accuse people concerned with the massive waves of immigration of being just, you know, 
pathetic racialist. That's that's not logical. We're in a completely different ethnic situation. You know, multiculturalism multiculturalism has happened in the last twenty years. You know, so I think the whole anti-racism discourse as well is completely geriatric and sort of stuck in the nineteen nineties. We're in a totally different situation. Modern, you know, British white British children are being raised in a completely different world to the one of the nineties. So I think that really puts things in perspective. One last tweet, which I'll read out. The left revealed their fundamental sterility by trying to make sex comfortable, casual, and twee, e.g. sex education, community, a thousand other TV shows. Sex should be passionate and dangerous. There's been a lot of sort of sexual talk, autistic sort of sexual debate on the timeline recently. Um, For me personally... I don't know. I've had very, I've had sort of instinctive, sort of, it's a, you know, it's ex- instinctive big R romantic thoughts about sort of sex or instincts about sex, all the time I've been alive. Really, it's 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 beyond just it's it's a spiritual thing for me. I I've always found the idea of chastity of sort of, and this should apply to both men and women of saving having sex with just one person, saving yourself for one person throughout your your lifetime. I've always felt that to be, just be a romantic concept. I think that's a, a romantic ideal. And there, obviously there are statistics which show people that do save themselves in such a way. They do statistically have um, more happy, happier marriages. And that's those statistics take into account, you know, their religious affiliation and whatnot. So they're tr- reliable statistics. Um, but I, 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 I've just from a purely spiritual sort of romantic perspective, that's just always seemed like a beautiful concept, just to have sex with sort of one, have sexual, one sexual partner in your life, there must be a very strong bond there, potentially. So I've always felt that was an ideal. I'm a very sentimental person in, in that regard. In a similar way, I've, I don't think, and I have trouble with Christianity in this way, I don't think there's anything wrong with sex either, sort, sort of from a spiritual perspective. I think it's a, re, a very good thing, and I there's there's a lot of beauty in it. I don't like the way certain parts of Christianity sort of look down on it and sneer at it. Or not even Christianity, like even sort of sort of pagans as well, you know, or any spiritual tradition sort of does this, sort of sneers at sexuality a bit, just because they, just because the monks and the priests who wrote these sort of spiritual texts had the self-control to, you know, they were nerds who had the sort of self-control to restrain themselves from sex. They think they're better than better than everyone else but so I don't I don't I don't get that I, I feel in my heart and I when it comes to spiritual matters I just follow my heart I think that's the most sane and human thing to do I think sex is a good thing a positively good thing and I don't like interpretations of Christianity or any other religion which sort of say that is a it's a dark or depraved thing I think I, I think the artist has a great trouble when it comes to religion because we do see do see that we, we see the beauty in everything I see the beauty in violence and war. I see the beauty in sex. You know, it's 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 difficult. I see God in everything, um, and I don't think that's totally unchristian or totally unfair. You know, I I don't. You know, God created the world, and he he said it was good. You know, God created good as well as evil, and I I I don't. I'm inclined to interpret Genesis. I don't like the way the church fathers interpret Genesis. They ter- interpret it quite literalistically. I think I think it's an it's an alleg- it's al- it should be interpreted more allegorically. Um, like the, the the church fathers interpret it like, oh Mary was a virgin and she you know saved mankind. So 
and she's the new Eve, so therefore Eve must be a virgin, and that by having sex, you know, that they cause the fall of man, and you know, all this sort of, they interpreted all this ugly, ugly stuff into the story of Genesis and the creation story. I don't, I don't like that really. Certainly there is a theme of a loss of innocence, but I don't know. I interpret it more mystically, more allegorically really. Um, I don't like, I don't like the idea that sex called caused the fall of man or anything like this, or sex was a an evil byproduct of the fall of man or something contrary to God's intentions. Or even with... I don't like interpreting any part of the world as sort of contrary to God's intentions, really, to be honest. Because, as I said, I see the beauty in anything. I see the beauty in war. I see the beauty in violence, you know? What is masculinity without a degree of power and wrath and violence? You know what I mean? It's, uh... I, yeah, so uh, that's that's sort of... I, I, so I sort of... I, I interpret Genesis more mystically. I sort of interpret it as sort of the way... I, I like Jordan Peterson's biblical lectures on Genesis. I like the way he interprets, interprets it in a sort of psychological way. In, in, as in Genesis is the story of human you know, humans gaining self-awareness and sentience and thereby learning malevolence because once you, you know, once you gain this knowledge of good and evil, you know, once you gain, once you gain knowledge... Um, or sentience, then you realise what hurts you, and then you, by realising what hurts you, you can real you realise thereby what hurts other people, and that's how malevolence is born, um, necessarily by um, the development of of knowledge and sentience. So I like Jordan Peterson's interpretation. So I kind of in- interpret it more in this allegorical, mystical, psychological way. I kind of like the idea. I like the idea that. The God intended this, you know, he intended this to happen, you know, this is all part of God's plan, if, if that makes sense. It isn't some horrific mistake. I think if, I think a lot of the roots of Christ, the problems with Christianity come from interpreting the Genesis story as a mistake. I think a lot of the, yeah, I think a lot of the life-denying people like Nietzsche criticizing Christianity for its life-denying nature, I think a lot of, a lot of it all stems from this interpretation of Genesis, like the world is a mistake. I don't think the world's a mistake. I think it's as God intended, but it's a it is a struggle. It's a it's a it's a process of spiritual sort of purification, um, and we are we are we are uh, we are a flawed species certainly, um, and we are a wicked species. But God created us anyway, and I think that's quite beautiful. And uh, the story of the human race is a story of returning to God. I think that all that's still true. I don't think, it, you know, God created the world and he allowed this to happen. You know, it's it's kind of inconceivable for... So, obviously, God allowed it to happen for a reason, you know, which obviously means he, he, he chose it to happen, you know what I mean? I don't like the idea that there are some parts of reality which must be rejected, which are sort of distasteful. I think sex is a beautiful thing. Um, I think... And violence is a beautiful thing, and I think a lot of Christians have a problem with sex because it has an element of violence to it, of domination to it. Um, but I think that just makes it all the more beautiful, really, and complex and beautiful. In the same way, the story of David is complex and beautiful because it has that element of violence of or complexity. You know, it's it's the world's a beautiful place. I think that's a that's a trouble. I yeah, I never, I don't empathise with those Christians who are just little lambs. You know what I mean? Who are just naive little lambs. I, Jordan Peterson talks about this too. You know. You know, I think you have to, as well as being a, a lamb of Christ, you have to be a, a lion of Judah as well. I think that's, that can definitely be read into Christianity. Um, I, I, I think, I think Christianity, 
as I understand it, properly understood, is a it's a it's an understanding of reality, and it's about or or any religion really. It should be about coming to terms with reality and understanding it, which is what I like about Jordan Peterson's interpretation because that's how he interprets the Bible. It's a or Christianity. It's about understanding reality and coming to terms with it, not sort of an ugly sort of rejection of reality and a sneering sort of distaste for it, a life-denying attitude. I don't like that. I never like that side of Christianity, the sort of the life-denyingness. Uh, and I like Jordan Peterson for sort of bringing Nietzsche's criticisms of Christianity, but sort of coming up with sort of Christian... using using Nietzsche's criticisms to improve Christianity, if anything, you know what I mean? So, yeah, that's... These these sorts the the uh, these thoughts have always sort of occupied my mind, but yeah, that, that, those are my thoughts basically on the on that matter. As I you know as I said, I think it can, I think it, it I th I don't think, I think it can definitely be read into Christianity. I think I don't think Christianity should be Gnostic. I think that's that's just as much of a that I think that's a. If anything, I think Gnosticism is is a perversion of Christianity. You know this sort of life-denying Gnosticism, you know, God created the world and he, he said it was good, you know, which reminds me, I've been reading, um, reading up on Emanuel Swedenborg recently, um, and I, I, I like, I like Swedenborg, I like his, um, so for those who don't know, Swedenborg was a, a, I think, 18th century Christian mystic, um, and he had a lot of, sort of, he claimed to have a lot of visions and to have visited heaven and hell, um, and I, I I like some of his ideas. Some of them are kind of wacky, a bit out there, but I like I like other ones. I like I like his idea that basically, when you die, all the restraints of this life are sort of taken taken off you. So you just you're just a being of pure will when you die, which I think makes a lot of sense. Because yeah, that that what is the soul but a, a sort of being of pure will and sort of nothing else, no intelligence, no fame or strength or good looks or anything. You're just a being of pure will. I think that's your purest essence. That's your soul. Um, so when you die, you you just become this being of pure will, and then you either go to heaven or go to hell, depending on what your will wants, really. So if you like, if if so, if you like depravity, you know, adultery and murder, then you go to hell where you can dabble in those things. Um, or if you like genuinely like being a good person and doing good things and being righteous and being charitable and you love other people then you go to heaven, and it's your choice, rather than God punishing you and sending you one way or the other. It's, it's your choice, you know? I like that idea. I think it makes a lot of sense. Um, and it's 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 a useful idea as well, because I, th I think you find it in the Bible. You know, I think that's what Jesus taught, teaches people to do. It makes it very clear that you should... The law is, the law is there only to sort of encourage you to align your will with that of God. Um, so Jesus is very clear, you know, he doesn't like it when people commit adultery or, or murder in their hearts, you know, you have to, you have to actually want to be a good person and enjoy being a good person. Obviously that's not going to be the case for any of us to start with, but it's what we should be aiming for ultimately, you know, we shouldn't be looking at, we shouldn't be looking at, you know, other women who aren't our wife and thinking, oh, I'd love to sleep with her, but oh, I can't cause I'm a Christian. I've got to obey God. We can't be begrudgingly o obeying God. And obviously, it takes a while to get there, you know, and the 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 law is there to guide you in that direction. So don't feel bad if you're not there yet, because it will take it takes a lifetime to accomplish. But eventually, the, you know, the end goal. I think that Jesus made this clear is 
is enjoying obeying the law and, ha- and so you don't even need the law anymore basically because you are corrected you know you you are like adam and eve in eden you know you that you don't you don't need it you are your will is realigned with god that's kind of the the story of salvation really realigning from realigning your will with god that's the journey of mankind um so i think that makes a lot of sense and it's a very swedenborg's idea makes a lot of sense i think it's a helpful idea because it will help you in that aim so like you, you'll be you'll be thinking throughout your life right do i what do i want to do do i want to you know to be an adulterer do i want to lie and steal or do i want to be genuinely want to be a good person be charitable and loving and you'll be thinking about that and guiding steering yourself in that direction so that when you die and you're released of all your earthly constraints and you enter this purer reality where you are just a soul or being a pure will you will direct yourself up to heaven rather than going down to hell um because that you, heaven is where you genuinely want to go. You won't want to do adultery. You won't want to thieve, thieve or murder or steal. For the bad souls, they'll want to do all these things. And so Swedenborg conceives hell as a sort of place, a place of perverse pleasure. Probably not a place of happiness, but a place of sort of perverse pleasure where people steal and adulterize. And, you know, it's... it's they do these things because they want to, but it's not a place of fulfilment, I guess is how you could conceive it. So it is still hell. It's not a good place to be, but they're there because they want to be, because they want to st- They want to live these unfulfilled lives, you know. You can imagine Akuma going to hell, you know. He just goes, his soul flies down to hell because, you know, he just wants to, he just spends eternity watching porn, you know, which is quite abhorrent, but it's what God, you know, God, you know, it's what, it's what he wants to do. And I, th- I like that. I really do like this idea. I think it's, correct i think it makes sense it's a really good interpretation of the scriptures you know and i it makes a lot of sense and i i think you people get autistic about this they're like oh but it says in the bible god will punish you send you down into the flames you can either, if you interpret that mystically it's, it's, it's like as i was saying about the story of genesis i don't, i feel i feel pe- people get very autistic about the bible they just can't get their heads around a sort of mystic interpretation you know if you interpret it mystically you know or poetically I think it, I think it comes with you know, if you have a more artistic mind, you got to have a more artistic sort of spiritual mindset to these things. Don't get autistic about it. I think you can easily interpret it those phrases where God says he will punish the sinner by you know sending them down to hell. You know, you know day you know all the, the harsh wording of judgment. You can interpret that as poetic language. You know what I mean? I I I really I don't like these sort of people who sort of autistically interpret scripture like that. It's a very sort of hyper-masculine mindset, hyper-rational mindset, rationalistic mindset. I don't like it. I think you've got to have an artistic sort of spiritual, mystical sort of interpretation of of any religion, really. Um, but yeah, you can interpret all that sort of poetic, sort of poetic, you know, a p- poetic phrasing, I think. I think that's, all, that's always how I've interpreted, really. I think C.S. Lewis said much the same thing. But anyway, I, I, I really like Swedenborg's idea um he has a lot of i think he has a lot of good ideas the thing is i think i think the case with uh, not other ideas i don't like so much like he comes out very strongly against the veneration of saints but i don't have a problem with with the veneration of saints really i think it's a perfectly natural impulse to want to venerate the the great men and women of history i think it's a perfectly human and healthy um desire you know like it's the same as really respecting your elders, respecting noble people in your family or community. It's the exact same thing, respecting your your ancestors and the the worthy saints of history. 
So I have no problem sort of making the sign of the cross before a statue of a uh, of a saint, you know, so long as you've got it in your head that, you know, you're not literally worshipping God, you know, this is a saint, you know, as long as it's in, in relation and in proportion to God, you know what I mean? Um, I wouldn't, I'm not, I'm not sure about praying to saints, I'm not so sure about that. I don't know, that's a different issue, but just the act of veneration, I just... As long as it's not pure idolatry, as, knows, as long as you realise that they are not God and you realise their place, it, you know, it is subservient to God, then I think there's no problem with it. But Swedenborg comes up, out very strongly against that. So I don't believe Swedenborg's divinely inspired or anything like that. I think what's happened is he had a lot of good... He was a scientist, he was a very brilliant mind, and he had a lot of very... Like Isaac Newton, he had a lot of, you know, very very good, very interesting theological ideas, um, and he wanted to express them, but he felt obligated to express them in the form of fictional visions, which never really happened, uh, in order to justify his beliefs. Whereas I think if he had just explained his beliefs as in the form of pious opinions, and just said, these are my pious opinions as to what happens when we die, this is what I think happens, and I think he would have been more respected if he'd done that. But instead, he had to go on inventing these sort of visions and saying, well, actually, you know, angels told me all this stuff would happen. I, I just think it's unnecessary. I think he just should have written a work of theology, you know, instead. He's just discredited himself by doing by coming up with all these imaginative visions, you know. Um, I understand why he did it, but I think it was it was wrong of him to do so. I don't think he needed it rather than justifying himself. I think he's just discredited him, discredited himself. But there is worth to be found in his theological ideas, I think. I think there's a lot of lot of good in there. You can you can take what you will from it and ignore the stuff that seems a bit a bit wackier to you. Um so yeah that those are my thoughts on, on Swedenborg. He's very is very creative though, you know, he's uh he's he's obviously had a very brilliant imagination, you know. Um so I you can I I guess you can you can enjoy his work from a sort of imaginative point of view, from a literary point of view as well. I've got to make dinner for myself, so I should probably finish this soon. I've only got a few more things to mention. Um, I forgot to mention this earlier, but as for the Progressive Party, um, I, I, I really... There's a symbol that we've been using on Anglo Twitter for about a year now, and it's sort of the uh, pointed finger pointing upwards. Po pointed index finger. Um, it's obviously taken from the Muslim symbol. Muslims use this as a symbol to represent Tawheed. Um, which you know means which represents you know the unity of God in their belief. But we've kind of appropriated it, and for me, it sort of represents, you know, it's a perfect represent representation of sort of centralization and power. You know, one God, one crown, one flag, one nation, one destiny. You know, so it's a unionist symbol. It's a symbol of centralization and power and action and vitality and forwardness. You know, of progress. You know. I think it's an excellent symbol, and so I'd like that to be the sort of salute of the uh, Progressive Party. Well, I say salute, that sounds kind of fashy, doesn't it? That's another reason I like it. It's like, hand gestures are cool for a political party, but there's so few of them you could use without being accused of being a fascist or whatever. But it's a pretty unfashy symbol, you know. It's just it's quite a symbol. It's just a pointed upwards finger. It works well as an emoji, you know. It's a good symbol. I, I, that's that's the sort of the, the, the salute of the Progressive Party, if we can call it that without you know, being accused of being fashy or whatever. But I, I like it because it isn't isn't a fashy symbol. It's very unfashy. It's very humble and simple. 
but it's a good symbol, representing sort of centralization, power, you know, action, pro progress, one nation, one crown, one England, one Britain, you know. Um, and I just want to also say that I went to Sutton Hoo on Saturday, which is, you know, I had a wonderful time. It's a very good national National Trust uh, exhibition there. Very The National Trust have done some... I've made the best of it, really, considering it's, you know, it's, it might be difficult to explain to normies, you know, the, the importance of this site when it is, you know, uh, there's very, uh, you know, there's there's very little that's been dug up, but what has been dug up is so signi unbelievably significant, you know. So the National Trust have done a great job of it. I'd recommend it to anyone listening. It, is a, it was a great experience, especially if you're interested in English history or Anglo-Saxon history, you know. It is the English Valley of the Kings, basically. It's much less big, but its significance cannot be understated, you know. It's the uh, it's the tomb of the... It's, it's a pagan... It's a, it's a pagan tomb, basically. It's a pagan tomb, which is very significant for England because we had such a short pagan history, and it's been so much forgotten. But it's it's it was it's so. Oh, I'm I'm just I'm I'm just in, been enthralled. You know, it's 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 we don't we don't have a very long pagan history in Britain in England because we were Christianized pretty quickly. So to have this, this, to have just to have this, pagan. This bur this pagan burial of a pagan English king, I think, is just so cool. It's just so amazing. It is it is the it's much smaller, but it's no less significant than you know the Valley of the Kings. It is the English Valley of the Kings. It's just it's so cool, <laughs> and I really enjoyed going. And the National Trust have done a good job with it. Anglo-Saxon art is so beautiful. Um, I've always said, you know, when we progressive nationalists are in charge of Britain, we should have you know, the presidential guard or whatever should have, uh, should be, you know, the new, should, they, they should have the aesthetic of the new model army, but with Sutton Hoo aesthetics. The presidential, or the, 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 the presidential guard of the future Lord Protector of Britain, uh, should be the new, look like the new model army, but with Sutton Hoo aesthetics. So, you know, with the, with the, the mask of King Radwald, you know, I think that would look really cool. I've argued for that for a long time. Um, the, the Anglo-Saxon Anglo-Saxon culture is so underappreciated. You know, these people were the earliest sort of ancestors of the English. You know, they are they are the original English culture, and by extension, you know, the original British culture because Britain, all the peoples of Britain owe, owe so much to the Anglo-Saxons and their conception of you know liberty and whatnot, which has really marked us as a as a people. But anyway, I think that's all I've got time for today because i got to make dinner for myself um i really enjoyed this as always um i my name's revo please check out my bio link and my Substack. um you'll find all my links on my bio link um and, you know follow me on twitter and, and all that um it's been a pleasure pleasure talking to you um and i'll see you guys uh next time because i do enjoy these podcasts so see you soon <laughs>